0: Let's pray together. Our Lord, we really do confess that we need to hear from you this morning. We need your word. Your word is truth and it is able to sanctify us. It is able to change us. It is able to make us more like your son. It is able to make us wise for salvation. It is able to encourage our hearts. It is able to lead us to action Uh, It is able to give us even hope in the brokenness of this world and the brokenness that we see even in our own lives. And so we ask and we pray that you would do all of these things and even much more than we even know how to ask. We really do trust that you will. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, in my five years of of just being a pastor here at the church, every once in a while, uh, I have someone come up to me and say something like this. They'll say, This is exactly the church that I've been looking for. Or they'll say, this is the church for me. This is the church for me. Or this is the church that I've always wanted. They'll say things like that. And the entire time, I'm trying really hard not to roll my eyes at them, right? The entire time as they're talking. Because I want to be like, how long have you been here again? Oh, one week. That's great. Why don't you come back next week and we'll have the conversation again, right? Or or I can't tell you the number of times that I've had someone come up to me and say, you know, this church is amazing. I am ready today. Is there a fast track to become a member? Can I become a member today? I want to become a member. And then for three weeks, there's probably no one that is more committed to Seven Mile Road, no one who is serving our church more than that person. And then all of a sudden they vanish, right? Right because they realize that this church is jacked up too, just like every other church in our city. And listen, that's not just false modesty, right? I'm not just trying to be negative. There's no doubt, I really do say, there's no doubt that God is doing some great things here at our church. But also, I know without a shadow of a doubt, that we are far from being perfect. We're messed up in a bunch of different ways. And obviously, it's not just our church that's that way, it's every church that's that way. It reminds me of a story of a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. He said, uh, one day, one of his members comes up to him and he says, listen, we're leaving this church because we're going to go and find the perfect church, right? And so Spurgeon takes a moment and then he responds and he says, listen, when you do find it, you better not join it because then you would ruin it if you did become a part of it as well. (laughs) I love that. I can't wait to use that one day when somebody comes up to me. I'm going to use that. Because you see, that's brilliant, right? Spurgeon's right. It, It really is true. There is no perfect church. Now, why do I bring this up? Because the passage that we're looking at together this morning shows us that the church has been imperfect ever since its earliest days. The church has been imperfect ever since its earliest days. In fact, the passage that we're looking at this morning will actually show us the very first example of sin entering into the church. The the first example of sin messing things up in the church. Take a moment to consider that for a moment, right? We're talking about the first few chapters of Acts. I mean, the church has barely gotten started. It is barely off of the ground at this point, and it already has issues. I mean, even the very first church, the one that was planted by Jesus, pastored by the apostles themselves, were far from being perfect. And, you know, I think if we're to be honest, sometimes that's really hard for us to believe because we will say things like this. We'll say, man, we need to be more like the church in Acts. We'll say that often. And listen, I get why we say that because when we read these first several chapters, it's nothing short of remarkable the things that we read. I mean, thousands upon thousands of people are being saved what seems like every single day. 3,000 people this day and and 5,000 people the next day. And not just that, the words that are used to describe this church are unbelievable. I mean, we read in the first several chapters of this book that they're meeting up for dinner like every single night, right? They're doing potlucks together. They're constantly studying God's word. They're, They're praying together all the time. People are getting healed, right? Peter is uh, preaching these lights-out sermons all the time, and and they're joyful, and they're generous, and the list just goes on and on and on. And so when we read these first few chapters, you and I can be tempted to say, man, that church in Acts is a church that I've always wanted. I wish our church was like that. But you see, when we do... It's sort of like Dr. Luke, who's the, 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 the writer of this book, he would be trying really hard not to roll his eyes at us. Because I think he would say, wait, how many weeks have you been studying Acts? <laughs> he would say, well, you should wait one more week. Because he would be right. Because you see, this week, this utopian church, this church that we all dream about, will taste its first example of sin from within. And it's so serious, this sin is so serious that this passage will literally end with two people lying in the grave. But here's the thing. You see, this passage isn't just significant because it's the first recorded sin within the church, though it is. But I think it's also significant because this is a sin that continues to plague the church. Friends, I believe this passage is significant because their sin could very easily be our sin. And this passage is significant because God's view of their sin, even back then, is exactly his view of this sin even today. And so it would be right for us to consider this passage as a word of warning to us. This passage is trying to warn us against something that can destroy our church, even destroy our lives. And that thing is hypocrisy. This passage is warning us against living a life of pretending. You see, this passage is warning us against presenting ourselves in one way that's different than how we really are. That's what this passage is doing. In fact, the warning of this passage can be simply stated as this, that you and I need to kill hypocrisy before hypocrisy kills us. That you and I need to kill hypocrisy before hypocrisy kills us. And I, and I want us to consider this, this warning in light of two truths, right? Two simple truths. The first is that God loves sinners. God loves sinners and despises hypocrisy. The second one is that Satan loves lies and despises God. God loves sinners and despises hypocrisy. The second point, that Satan loves lies and despises God. These are just the two points that we're going to be looking at together this morning. So we want to jump in. The first point, it God loves sinners and despises hypocrisy. Just a a little heads up to you, 80% of the sermon will be on point one. Okay, so don't freak out. Okay. 80% 80% of the sermon won't be on point one. So God loves sinners and despises hypocrisy. And We're actually just going to look at the first part of that statement, God loves sinners. You see, if I could summarize the entire Bible for you in three words, I would say it's that, that God loves sinners. Friends, God loves, I want you to hear that, God loves people who have messy lives. God loves people who have embarrassing backgrounds. God loves people who have done unspeakable things. God loves people who live constantly in regret over the things that they have done. God loves people who struggle with addictions of very different kinds. God loves people who have so struggled with these addictions that they have made a mess out of their lives. I need you to hear that God loves sinners. And you see, that's what he has shown us ever since the beginning. Ever since sin entered into this world, chapter by chapter, page after page, we have seen God actively loving and pursuing sinners of every size and shape and color. That's what he has done. He has loved Abraham who was a liar. He loved Moses, who struggled with anger. He loved David, who was an adulterer. He loved Rahab, who was a prostitute. He loved Peter, who was a denier. He loved Paul, who was a murderer. And chapter after chapter, page after page, one thing that we see over and over throughout the scriptures is this, that God loves sinners. Would you let that sink into your heart for a moment? God loves sinners. In fact, God so loves sinners that it's exclusively for sinners that Jesus came into this world and died. It's exclusively for sinners that Jesus came into this world. How do we know that? Because the scriptures tell us so. Consider these two verses. First from 1 Timothy, this is what it says. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. What a simple statement, but what a powerful statement. Christ Jesus came into this world, why? Not for those who are good, not for those who have things put together, but he came into this world to save sinners. And then consider Romans 5. Paul is saying, listen, do you want to know what God's love is like? This is what God's love is like. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Consider that, right? He didn't die for us based off of our promise to be good or when we had things put together. While we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us. And so do you know what that means? That means that if you are sitting here in these seats this morning and your life is marked by sin, If your sin, if your life is unbelievably messy and and, and embarrassing, you're hoping people don't find out the things that you have done and if it's filled with regret, you wish you didn't do the things that you did or that you you wish you did do the things that you didn't do. In fact, if there are areas of your life that are so broken that you can't even talk about it, you don't even know how to open up your mouth and confess that you've done those things, well, then I want you to know that You're exactly who Jesus came looking for. You're exactly who Jesus came looking for. His plan from the beginning was that his family would be filled with people just like you. His plan is to offer sinners like you and like me love and mercy and forgiveness when we place our faith in Jesus who died for sinners who are just like you and me. You see, that's why he built this church. And that's why he built every other church, so that sinners of every size and shape and color would have a place to call home. This is a home for sinners. And so that every sinner of every label and every description, the label of liar or the label of adulterer, the label of cheater, whatever it may be, that you could be given a new name, that you could be given the name of Christian. Listen to how one theologian describes it. He says this. He says, for a Christian to be a Christian, he must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. The the Christian church is one of the few organizations in the world that requires public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. I love that, right? There is no slander in the charge that the church is full of sinners. Such a statement would only compliment the church for fulfilling her divinely appointed task. Would you hear that? The church is a place for sinners. In fact, a prerequisite to becoming a member of the church is that you would confess that you are indeed a sinner. Seven Mile Road, I would hope and I pray that it would be utterly clear to you this morning that God loves sinners. He loves them so much that he is filling up churches all over the world with sinners by rescuing them from their sin. That has been the plan from the very beginning. And it's also what we've seen in this book of Acts. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are being daily added to the church and all of those people have the prerequisite of being sinners. And it's also what we continue to see today, right? Even here, by God's grace at our church, that sinners are being added to this church. God loves and saves sinners. But you see, God not only loves sinners, he also despises hypocrisy. God not only loves sinners, he also despises hypocrisy. Now, if you hear that, you may immediately want to say, you know, well, if that's true, I'm not exactly sure where that leaves me. Because I know that I am a sinner, That's, that's for sure, But I also know that I can be a hypocrite at times, right? I know that my life has plenty of examples of me saying one thing and then doing something else. So the question is, does God love me or despise me? Well, you see, it is true. We can be and are hypocritical in life. And in one sense, that's very true. But hypocrisy actually goes much deeper than that. Listen to how one pastor uh, describes it. He says this. He says, hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. It's trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. Did you catch that? Hypocrisy is deliberate, right? It's calculated. It's it's premeditated. It's not simply just a disconnect between what you say and what you do, though it is. It is primarily, and at the heart of it, it's a, it's a disconnect between who you are and who you say you are. It's a disconnect between who you are and, and how you present yourself to be. You see, a hypocrite is someone who denies the reality of their sinfulness and instead walks around wearing a mask. Right? A hypocrite is someone who denies their sinfulness and instead walks around wearing a mask of righteousness. But at the end of the day, it's just smoke and mirrors. It's a, it's a life of pretending, and God says that He despises it. In fact, this passage will show us just how much God despises hypocrisy. So, would you open up with me to Acts chapter 4? It's found on page 912. I'm going to encourage you to keep it open. We're going to be looking at it a, a ton. We're going to look from Acts chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 34. We're going to continue reading into the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, essentially the entire thing right now, and then we'll consider it together. Page 912, this is what it says. It says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It's a heavy passage, right? That's an intense passage. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was in my uh, GCM. That's what we call our smaller communities here at Seven Mile Road, and and we were discussing this passage, and to be honest, uh, we struggled with it. We struggled with it because when you read it, it just seems so intense. It seems so harsh. And as you're reading through this passage, you can't just help but ask yourself, you know, how did Ananias and Sapphira end up dead? How did these two people end up dead when you consider what they did? Well, let's see, I think the text is telling us that it all started with a man named Barnabas. You see, Dr. Luke mentions him for the very first time in in verse 36, chapter 4, but he will get mentioned like 23 more times in this book of Acts because it seems like Luke really likes this guy, right? He can't stop talking about him, about, about all the things that he does that's so encouraging or all the ways in which he is helping people. In fact, he's so known as that guy that they even give him a nickname. You see, his actual name is Joe, but the apostles give him the nickname Barnabas which means son of encouragement. And if I could say it this way, Barnabas is sort of the, the poster child for all that is going right at the church, right? If you want to say, well, give me a, a picture of what's going well at the church, we would say, look at Barnabas. Because we, remember, we just said that the church up until this point has been killing it, right? Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. They're, they're studying and they're praying. They're generous and they're joyful. In fact, they're, they're so generous. Look at what it says in verse 34. It says this. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What is Luke saying here? He's saying, basically, there was no one in the church that was struggling financially, right? And it wasn't because the church was composed of just a bunch of rich folks. No, that was true because these folks had such love and concern for one another that those who had lands and homes, they were selling their possessions and gave it to those who were in need. And then Luke says, by the way, do you know who's been a really great example of that kind of generosity? You would say, our boy Barnabas, right? I mean, look at verse 37. He says, Barnabas sells his property. Yeah, it takes the money and gives it to the apostles so that they can give it to those who are in need. Now listen, it's, it's clear that this isn't some form of Christian socialism, right? This isn't some kind of coerced giving. No, this is generosity that's rooted in gospel conviction, right? Barnabas is so moved by the way that Jesus has been generous towards him that he voluntarily desires to give generously to those who are around him. And so he gives, and he gives of his land and the money that it comes with. And so what happens as a result? Well, people begin admiring him, right? They applaud him. They, They appreciate him. They give him attention. They give him respect. They even give him a nickname, Now, I want you to picture this for a moment, right? As Barnabas is there, and he's getting all this attention, and and people are receiving him in the way that they are, I want you to picture Ananias and Sapphira. They're sort of standing off on the sideline, and, and they're drooling as they watch Barnabas and the receptivity that he's receiving. It's like the seeds of hypocrisy are beginning to to take place in in their heart. And they're watching Barnabas, and it's really bothering them. It's it's really overcoming them. You see, that's the contrast that's being made here. That's why the text is being set up this way, because you see it in the word, but, in chapter 5, verse 1. Consider it again. It says this. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Consider this, right? There's two stories that are sort of placed side by side, one of Barnabas and the other one of Ananias and Sapphira. And now on the surface, these stories, these two stories look almost exactly the same. They look identical, right? Both of those folks, they sell their property. Both of these people, they take their money and they drop it off at the apostles' feet. But where they differ is this. One example of giving is rooted in gospel conviction, in gospel generosity. And the other example of giving is rooted in hypocrisy. One is gospel generosity, and the other one is hypocrisy. Because it's really important for you and I to understand this. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't being forced to do anything They didn't have to do anything. There was no compulsive giving that was going on here, right? First of all, they weren't being forced to sell their property. That's why Peter says in verse 4, he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, this was his land. He could have done with it what he wanted to or not wanted to do. There was nobody telling him to do anything. And secondly, they weren't even being forced to give a certain amount of money once the land was sold. Again, look at verse 4, Peter says. He says, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You see, Ananias and Sapphira could literally have given 0% of what they made from this property, or they could have given 100% of it, and it would have not made any difference. So the question is, what is the problem here? What is God so angry about? We see, the problem was that Ananias and Sapphira were not giving in order to be generous. Instead, they were giving in order to be seen as being generous. Ananas and Sapphira weren't giving in order to be generous. Instead, they were giving in order to be seen as generous. One scholar says it this way. He said, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, They told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their ego. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they were giving in order to receive the attention and approval of people. If if you could picture it, as they're walking down the aisle and heading up to the altar, it's almost like while they're dropping off this donation, they still sort of had one eye focused on Barnabas. And they're sort of hoping, hey, once we drop this off, maybe people would love us just like they loved him. Uh, Maybe they might even give us nicknames, like they gave him a nickname. And so it led them to lie. It led them to pretend. And then at the end of the day, it also led them both to be judged by God and to be placed six feet under in a grave. Now I must say, right, all the week of studying or preparation of considering this passage hasn't made this judgment any easier for me to swallow because everything in me wants to say i mean at the end of the day they lied about the the selling of a piece of real estate i mean how how great of a sin is that right I, i mean there's sins that i can think of that seem much more vulgar than that much more offensive than that but you see even my question reveals my tendency to reduce the seriousness of sin it reveals how differently I view sin from how God views sin because what is sin in the eyes of God it's the very thing that required his son to have to die what is sin in the eyes of God it's the very thing that required his son to have to die. And so to minimize the seriousness of sin, that any sin, is to minimize the cost of sin. To minimize the seriousness of sin is to minimize the cost of sin. That's why I think Peter says here in verse four, he says, essentially Ananias and Sapphira, you haven't just lied to man, but to God. Right? This wasn't simply a, a sin against the leaders of the church or the members of the church. This is a sin ultimately against God himself. Listen to what one pastor says. He says this. He says, if we are offended by the swift judgment of God described here, it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the seriousness of our sin in relation to his holiness. We shouldn't ask the question, why did they die? Instead, we should wonder, why do we remain alive? God is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. Some of my wrote, the church is just getting off the ground, and they've already had two funerals. These aren't just funerals of people who are dying of old age. These are two people who are being judged for their sin. And it's sort of like as we're standing here in front of their graves, we we can't help but ask ourselves, what in the world are we supposed to learn from these deaths? Well, I would say one thing we we should learn, that we should be clear of, is that God despises hypocrisy. God despises hypocrisy. God despises it when we present ourselves as being more spiritual than we really are. Ananias and Sapphira chose to sin against God by pretending to be more spiritual than they are and it led to their judgment. But these deaths also teach us something else, which leads us to our final point, that Satan loves lies and despises God. Satan loves lies and despises God. Look at verse 3. It says, but Peter, said Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Because consider this, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they're absolutely responsible for what they have done, for their sin. But I think this text wants us to know that it's not just this couple who is at work in this situation. You see, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 31, you'll see that Christians, it says, were being filled with the Holy Spirit. But chapter 5, verse 3 says that Satan is filling the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And so whereas in chapter 4, when they're filling, being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see the church thriving and experiencing amazing unity, and it says great grace, what we see in chapter 5 as, as, the, uh, as Satan is, is filling up this couple's heart what we see in the church is something completely different. It leads to disruption and division and ultimately death. And you see, what we're seeing here in chapter 5 tends to be a pattern when it comes to the enemy, when it comes to Satan. It seems like in the scriptures, whenever God is doing something new or or, or something big, you see Satan sort of looming, working really hard to stop it. And, And how does he do that? He often does that by injecting lies into that situation. I mean, consider that for a moment, right? If we go back all the way to the first pages of the Bible, when God is creating the world, who shows up in the garden? Right? Satan does. And he does everything that he can to try to convince Adam and Eve that God cannot be trusted. Or fast forward and consider Jesus, and he had just gotten baptized, and he's about to inaugurate his ministry here on earth, Who meets him in the wilderness? Satan does. And he does everything that he can to try to convince Jesus that God's way is in fact not the best way. That there is a a better way apart from him. Or consider this brand new church. This new thing that God is doing. This thriving church in Acts. Who decides to get involved in chapter 5? Satan does. And he tries to convince them, Ananias and Sapphira, that lying is actually better than being honest about who they are. You see, in each instance, in each one of these instances, what we are seeing is Satan sort of operating out of his true character. In fact, listen to how Jesus describes Satan in John chapter 8. This is what he says. He says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying when Satan opens up his mouth, he can't help but lie because there is no truth in him. When Satan opens up his mouth, he can't help but lie because there is no truth in him. And with every word that Satan speaks, his intention is to steal and kill and destroy everything that God is doing here on earth. It makes me wonder if the story of Ananias and Sapphira is what causes Peter to write this in in 1 Peter. Listen to what he says. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to desire. Some of my wrote, I think that's a really good warning, a really important warning for us even this morning. You see, not only is Acts 5 warning us against living a life of pretending and hypocrisy, I think it's also warning us to be watchful against the schemes and the lies of the enemy because his only intention is to devour us. You see, it's exactly what Satan has been doing since the the very beginning, since the first pages of the scripture, and Peter warns us that even today his intentions are the same. So we should, we should close by asking ourselves this question, right? How do we apply this passage? What do we do with what we have learned? I, I, I want to give you just one thought, one thought for us to leave with. I would say this. I believe this passage teaches us that we should fear living in hypocrisy. We should fear living in hypocrisy. Now, why do I say that? It's because it's exactly what the church in Acts does. Look at verse 11. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And so I want to just give two words to address two groups of people this morning. First, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, can I begin just by asking you a simple question? Are any of you living a dual life? Are any of you sitting here this morning in these seats before the Lord, before your brothers and sisters, and you are living a dual life. Maybe you're presenting yourself in one way, but in reality, you're living a life that's completely different. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're currently living in some sort of secret sin, something that you are hoping, praying that no one in this world will figure out. You're living a life... Of duplicity you're living an active life of sin and you're hoping no one in this world will figure it out well if either of that is true I am praying I am genuinely praying that you would be filled with fear this morning I'm praying that this passage would cause you to fear living in hypocrisy Listen to what one pastor says. He says, fear is an integral part of worship. For those of us familiar with the idea of an infinitely loving God, this is a jarring realization. But God's love only makes sense when we know the magnificence of his glory and the might of his power. That is why John Newton wrote, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." As the fear of God increases, so does the sense of his love, because we understand more fully what we have been saved from. Brother and sister, can I tell you, even as a child of God, you are a child of God. Even as a child of God, God does not owe you his mercy. God does not owe you his mercy. God does not owe you another opportunity to repent. So I wanna beg you this morning, do not take your sin lightly. I want to beg you this morning, do not misunderstand the patience of God towards your sin as God's indifference towards your sin. He may, be, he may be being really patient with you right now, but he doesn't have to be patient with you forever. But even today, as you are sitting in these seats, so long as God has given you breath, it is right that you should repent of your sin even as you are sitting in these seats right now, you should confess your sin to God. You should confess your sin to one another immediately. I would say, don't wait for the service to end. You should confess your sin to one another. You should remember wholeheartedly that God loves sinners, but you should also remember that he despises hypocrisy. He despises hypocrisy. And today itself, you should trade in the judgment of God towards sin for the love of God towards sinners. You should do that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, in fact, if I could be a little bit more specific, if you're here this morning and maybe you grew up in the church, maybe, if, maybe you publicly reflect the life of a Christian. On the surface, you look a lot like one. But privately, if you were to be honest, you have no regard for God. You have no relationship with him. Maybe over the years you have gotten used to going through the motions, but in reality, you have no love for Jesus. You have no desire to even obey what he has to tell you. You know that. You're not even living that way. Maybe every Sunday you're just playing church, playing Christian, doing all the things that Christians do, but in reality you know you don't resemble Christ at all throughout the week. Well, my friend, I pray that this passage would also cause you to fear living in hypocrisy. Because I need you to hear this. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Consider this quote. He says, it may be difficult for us to distinguish between a truly repentant heart and a seasoned faker but nothing is hidden from God. The Holy Spirit knows our thoughts as if they were being played through a loudspeaker or being displayed on a screen. That is why, despite fooling everyone else, Ananias and Sapphira were still found out. There are no locked doors or hidden closets for the Holy Spirit. I can't see inside of your heart to discern whether you're a Barnabas or an Ananias, but the secrets of your heart are not secrets to God. When you proclaim with your lips, Jesus is Lord, And live as if his law doesn't matter. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking that you have successfully tricked God. Did you hear that? As a sober word of warning to you, would you hear that? You see, God is not mocked, my friend. God is not mocked. You might be even really good at fooling those who are around you, but he will not be fooled. He will not be fooled. God's word says you will ultimately reap what you sow. But my friend, would you also hear this? While you ought to fear God, and you really should, you also need to know that there is no one else that is more worthy of your love than him. Would you know that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners that are just like you, that are just like me, people with lives that are messy and embarrassing, filled with regret, even people who are currently living in hypocrisy. He came to save such people. If that's you, I want to invite you today to repent. So long as you are sitting in these seats this morning, so long as God has given you breath, you should not delay. You should not delay one more moment. Instead, even this morning, I want to invite you to trade in the judgment of God towards sin for the love of God towards sinners. Selma Road, no church is perfect. No church is perfect, but thank God that it's for imperfect people like us that Jesus came into this world to save us. So we should work hard to kill hypocrisy Before hypocrisy kills us let's pray our Lord we are asking that you would help us not to simply be hearers of the word and to so deceive ourselves but that we would do what it says you love us so much that you have given us a clear warning this morning through your word You have shown us the destruction that comes from living a life of hypocrisy. And you have shown us, in fact, that the fullness of life comes from being honest and transparent about our sin. Lord, you have shown us that Satan is, in fact, the father of lives and and that we are not his children. Instead, God, you are our father. We are your children. From you alone comes truth. So help us, Lord, even today to be more like you. Help us to submit ourselves to you and to resist the devil so that he would flee from us. And our God, we are praying and we are asking if any of us sitting here are living a life of hypocrisy, I am pleading that you would show them mercy. Please be merciful to us, O God. Please do not treat us as our sins deserve. By your spirit, I'm asking that you would lead us to repentance even today. Help us to confess our sin to you. Help us to confess our sin to one another and so be healed. Father, we really do know that you don't owe us mercy, but we're grateful for the mercy that you have shown and continue to show. Help us to love you more and to love our sin less. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.